Suddenly, the light changes. It floods into the room from a high bay window into the winter garden, leaving patterns on the wooden floors, highlighting some impressionistic painting on the wall. Bookshelves full of works on art on Barbara Hepworth, Tintoretto, Henry Moore, Picasso. On the coffee table, a book by Dutch writer Nescu. Some records next to a turntable. Chinese opera, Chopin, XTC, The Beatles, Debussy. Where there once was a bass amp, there now stands a grand piano, and the sound of a band changes. There is something unsettling about change. It challenges your certainties, your expectations. Sunshine leaves the shadow of a doubt. 1983 sees not one new album by the Nits, but one and a half. Conversations with Rob Kloot, Michiel Peters, Ein Kofstede, and Robert Jan Stips. Right, so... Yeah, I'm on? Yes. Okay. Dial Nits, a podcast about the Dutch band Nits. A celebration of five decades of sophisticated music from the Netherlands. Your host, Erik Vakon. Okay. Sure. Uh, yeah. Sure. Omsk, a turning point in the career of the Nits. Yeah. Sound-wise, I mean, completely different album. Um, the cover tells you all about it. I mean, the darkness of work is replaced by something light and yeah. and yeah. sunny. Yeah. Uh, but for you, it was also a major change, Rob. It was a, quite a big change. Uh, I remember before we started uh, recording Omsk, I remember we were... All the whole band was meeting up in a bar and talking about the future. And then Michiel was uh, still uh, there. And then we really got into this nice vibe. I said, well, you really have to make something different. You know, we have to open music and uh, not afraid of doing an experiment and so on and so on. And this sort of atmosphere was around it, I guess, when we started recording. And for for me, uh, I, I experimented with Oms quite a bit also uh, with with the drum set because I was uh, I was quite influenced by uh, the way uh, classical players in in an orchestra uh, treated their instruments and mm -hmm. the sounds they got uh, from that and I wanted to at that moment to leave the, the classical uh, drum set style so I decided uh, to uh, just to use only my hands So I just stood behind the drums, which I all put up. Also, the bass drum was just lying. So everything you hear, for instance, the song Henry Moore, is all just standing and playing the drums. Mm. So basically, if I got you correctly, you sort of left uh, the traditional role of the drummer in the rock band. Yeah, I, t I left the, the, the traditional rock approach. Mm -hmm. I think that's, uh, yeah, of, of course... Uh, The drums still have this sort of time and sound aspect, but uh, done in a different way. So let's talk about that song. It opens the album. Yeah. We, we're starting, basically, what we hear is uh, uh, a keyboard yeah, the, groove, the, uh, and we hear the drums. Yeah, the, the, the keyboard, the interesting part about the beginning of the song is uh, that uh, the, what you hear on the album is, in fact, a loop. Mm. So uh, probably Robert Jan, I guess, uh, played this sort of melody. Maybe there is also marimba sound in it, could be. And uh, the, re the recording engineer recorded just quite a, a big part of it and turned it into a loop. And then he played it. And of course, then you hear this melody coming up. And he recorded that on another piece of, uh, of tape. And that's the thing he cut to the beginning of the song. So he fades in the, the loop and then boom. And then comes down the, the rest of the band with the drums. Mm -hmm. And that was already a, a very nice, uh, nice idea of the engineer to do it like this. And now let's go to the drums. Yeah. Well, uh, the drums uh, are played, uh, like I told you, uh, with, with only with the hands, so which makes it very open. It leaves a lot of space for the for the instruments and the voices around you. And uh, sound-wise, it's it's quite light and quite bright. Mm -hmm. So uh, it it gives uh, the song a sort of a transparency, in fact. 
and 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 I liked that very much because uh, I I allowed myself then to play different sort of more melody-like patterns on the drum set than you normally do when you sit and had the bass drum and the hi hat all those stuff. But you you have the tom toms and and the bass drum in this in this case and you use it more like a sort of a small melody all the time. This yeah. is what amazes me when you talk about drumming, like yeah. like starting here. Yeah, you talk about melody. You talk about you, know, you talk about uh, a sort of ambience that you were trying to get. Uh, yeah, some atmosphere. Yeah, was that the new thing that you were thinking about? Like in comparison to maybe something like those new wavish. Yeah, albums? absolutely. Yeah, 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 yeah. I was very much interested in creating this sort of atmosphere, and for me, uh, uh, playing drums and percussion was always. Uh, a combination of uh, of uh, choosing sounds and, and 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 creating an atmosphere, and they were also intertwined with the groove. In my my approach to playing drum sets or drums or percussion in general, um, it, it's not groove which is always on top. That's not the case. I like to have this very nice. A flexible thing going on, but it's my, my main aim is not to push the band forward with a, with a, with a very interesting groove. That's I, I like to make an atmosphere. I like to tell a story with the drum set. You once asked me what I thought your style of drumming was, and I said you're a percussionist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But many people, uh, I think you're right there. It's. It, it, it all depends, of course, on what your uh, definition of uh, of a drummer is. Uh, I mean, yesterday I was visiting uh, my nephew, and he, he's really into a jazz, and he played me some uh, some videos. And then you really see that uh, many jazz drummers, not all of them, but many of them, do the same thing. They play, in fact, they play a sort of a melody all the time. And of course, they have this swing, which is very very nice and very elegant. Which is also a thing I like very much, but they they are always doing a little story. They play a sort of a melody on their instrument. At the same time, you have to drive the band sometimes. Yeah. I mean, especially in the live situation. Yeah, yeah. The the change uh, to when we played, uh, we started playing uh, a touch of any more live. Uh, I, I I played it on a drum set because there were many other songs which which I thought required the use of a drum set so then then of course the, the groove and the feel of a touch of anymore changed a little bit more into a pop direction which for on a on stage situation is very nice that's it's always the difference between uh, the, the say the laboratory uh, situation when you start doing a song in the studio and then you transform it or you bring it to the stage and then that requires sometimes a different approach to to make it possible for the audience to really get what you're driving at. So you get the Omsk version, which is which is that the one that opens the album, and yeah. then it's gone through many many different changes. Yeah. That, that same song. Yeah, yeah. Which one is your favorite then? Uh, it depends. It depends. Because I'm always uh, almost envious when I <laughs> listen to the, the recording that that particular feel has disappeared. It is it, I, uh, that that's that's not something I can recreate. That's that's just a moment there. On the other hand, uh, we we did the, the song many times in the project with uh, Scapino Ballet, and there the, the 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 groove and and the sound and and the soundscape of the of the drum part really drove the dancers, which was for me a really a very nice experience. How much of that original recording was done live then? Um, apart from the from the intro. That was the whole song. That's uh, but it just that's the way in in those recording days. That was the procedure. You play the song from the beginning to the end. So I I don't really recall. Maybe uh, Hank knows that or Robert John. The end part on the studio version is a sort of short soloish thing with the clapping of other people and some drums. I don't recall having done that in the same track. Probably we edited it. I'm, I'm not sure anymore. But it could very well be that when we finished the song, we just kept on playing and this just appeared. Could be. I don't remember that. You uh, alluded to a couple of jazz players that your nephew showed you. Yeah. What would be your idols if, if you had three names to choose from? In terms of jazz or in, in general? In terms of, in general, drummers that you really appreciate? 
Well, I must really say, I must really state that the the the, the one drummer which really drove me as a, as a young boy in the direction of the drums is Joe Morello mm. from from the Dave Rubber Quartet and. Uh, I remember that in the in the late 50s, early 60s, uh, the Take Five song was a big hit in Holland, uh, like everywhere in the world. And you quoted that live with the Nits sometimes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We had a, we had a suddenly I met your face. There was always a sort of a drum part which was sort of based on on uh, on the Joe Morello feel, not his his playing. And uh, I remember that the moment it was televised, this song for the first time, and I saw that I suddenly realized that this wonderful thing going on there that was a drum set, because I then saw it in my own eyes. And I I must thank Joe Morello for this, for bringing me that. Yeah, he's he's a very one of the most elegant players I I, I know. And in the rock field? In the rock field, um, two names come to me, uh, which is uh, Ringo Starr and Bill Bruford. Ringo Starr for his unbelievable feel and sound which he creates and his creativity. And, and Bruford because he can play so very, very beautiful, these complex stuff. And it had always this very, very good drive. It's, it's really, really, uh, he's also a big inspiration for me. Last question. One thing that you've always avoided, except for that one time, was the drum solo. Yeah. The real drum solo. Yeah. Why? So what's the question? <laughs> Why? Uh, well, maybe, of course, you realize that in, in the whole repertoire of Nits, there are no songs with solos. So we, as a band, we uh, we avoided that because we thought it would not add to uh, to to the, the atmosphere or, or the song itself. And we were not uh, the people who were there on stage to show uh, what you can do. On the other hand, uh, soloing is also uh, a way of, of showing your vulnerability and, and trying to communicate something which really uh, is interesting to you with the audience. So both things are in there. And I think we, we avoided solos because we didn't think it would add something to the song. And, and uh, it, there are not very many musicians, in my experience, who can play really interesting solos. That's uh, in, in, in the days when we started, uh, there were these long, long, long going on guitar, drums, bass solos, which I didn't think was very interesting. But on the other hand, I know some people who, uh, who do short solos, which are just flabbergastingly good. It's really... Later on in our career, we did. We, uh, Henry Moore uh, had a had a sort of solo at the end, and uh, certainly I met your face had this sort of funny thing in it. And we also did some uh, uh, some preparations for tours, playing very small halls. And I remember one one uh, one instance when we played uh, two sets, and we started the second set with three solos. So I would go up first and play a percussion solo and then Robert John would do a small song and Hank would do a small song and then we went together again, which was very, very nice. I liked that very much too because uh, it's very rare for an audience to sit there and the drummer comes up and plays a solo. <laughs> Touch of Henry Moore went through so many changes and sometimes also the, the, the instruments they used. There was once yeah. the aluminium houses. Yeah. Then there was, what was the, ba the backdrop? Yeah, the big the, uh, the, 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 the square the plates. plates. Yeah, yeah. Because the song itself has so much images in itself that it, it's very, very suitable for this sort of approaches. It's really nice. It's uh, I've always loved to play the song. It's uh, really Omsk is yeah in the in the top five of my favorite Nits albums. Uh, Omsk would surely be there. And there's something else, Rob, that I need to. To know, I've seen the list of instruments listed yeah. on the on the album cover, and there's something yeah. that carries your last name. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and it's it's called uh, Clufonics. Clufonics, yeah, yeah, Clufonic. Yeah, it's it's in fact it's a it's a, a very simple form of Mellotron. Uh, and Mellotron is a is a, a keyboard instrument which uses uh, pieces of tape with pre-recorded sounds. Like tape loops? Mm. Yeah, loops, exactly. And uh, I built uh, a device which the, the center of it, the core of it, is a cassette player 
and the cassettes contain, let's say, 20 minutes of continuous sound. Let's say uh, a running water tap, you know, and you record this and you for 20 minutes and you put it on a cassette. And then I around that I uh, devised some electronics which made it possible just to hit a pad. And the moment you hit the pad, a small electronic door opens and makes the sound audible. And you can you just adjust the time the door is open. Mm-hmm. So it can be very short or it can be like, like this. Can, can one hear it? On the, uh, on yeah, the... it's, uh, let's say on Omsk, it's uh, very apparent on Spirit Awake from Michiel. There is the sound of... Uh, I think it's scratching on the tile floor, mm. if I remember well. Or, or it could also be the running water sound. And uh, it was, in fact, a sort of yeah first attempt to use, let's say, sampling <laughs> in, in, in our music. And later on, of course, the digital version was, it was of course, widely used. But that was, that was one of the things uh, that came from the idea just to find uh, a, a new approach on, on the album we wanted to make. So, the Omsk album has a couple of contributions by you and the uh, the Kilo one as well. Those two belong together in my mind, 1983. Yes, yes, yes. Let's let's single out the one track that I would like you to tell me about is um, Bild am Sonntag, as usual. Uh, yeah, it was inspired by a visit to East Berlin as it was. Uh, before the wall uh, came down, uh, uh, Paulette and myself uh, went to uh, Asturias, to East Berlin, mm. after the Zwangswechsel of 25 D-Mark in 25 Ostmark. We went to uh, East Berlin for a day. And what, what do you remember about that trip? What I uh, remember most is... Uh, was a long ride in uh, one of those uh, tram lines uh, on the Straßenbahn uh, in mm. East Berlin to some far uh, outer part of uh, East Berlin uh, through those darkened streets, streets, and that made a, a very big impression on me. And maybe that inspired me uh, to write Bild am Sonntag. Bild am Sonntag deals with with newspaper, newspapers and, and yeah. No, yes and no. Yeah, and no. also the images of Berlin, where you, especially in the eastern part, where you can see still see the um, the holes, the shells made, the the bullets in the walls of and and the the totally uh, dilapidated. Uh, uh, a state of, of the city at that time. It was, it was, I suppose, it must have been 1984, so five years before the before uh, the Wiedervereinigung. Uh, so it was so so run down mm. the whole city, and you you couldn't help to notice uh, the bankruptcy of the DDR. Uh, or GDR, I should say, uh, economy, and uh, it made a big impression on me. And uh, Bild am Sonntag uh, is lying, is lying on the ground. Yeah, it's a kind of a kind of wordplay. Uh, but I do not know very much about Bild am Sonntag. I know it's a kind of tabloid of the, I think, the Springer uh, concern. Mm-hmm. A song that is that is also full of harmonies. Yeah, I, I like that uh, as a Beach Boy fan. I, I quite like the song. Yeah, 
you released another version, but it's just the vocals. Yes, that was used as, as a special, uh, as a flip side of, uh, was just a, a joke to, uh, a bit like Beach Boys. You know, nowadays you can buy CDs by the Beach Boys with only the vocal tracks there. I think very impressive. Uh, that change from work to Omsk, how did you live that? Because, I mean, musically speaking, it's it's a completely different bag. Well, um, Robert well, Jan entered the band. And Robert Jan entered the band. Instrumentations were, were different. Yeah, and in a way, I regret a bit that from a, uh, from a band where the guitars played a quite a role that diminished more and more when Robert Jan came because he felt he took a lot of space with keyboards and mm. because his virtuosity he's, a, he's an excellent uh, brilliant keyboard player but, but uh, since his coming the band became less of a guitar band and I, th I do regret that uh, in a way mm. I have nothing against uh, synthesizers or keyboards, but I, I, I love guitars too. And uh, mm. yeah, but then there was uh, this this huge jump. I mean, let's let's say unpleasant surprise or spirits awake. Uh, then there's that one that didn't land on the album, uh, Man of Straw. All those contributions of yours. What what do you remember about that? Uh, yeah. Man of Straw was, was used as a, I think as as a, as a experiment to to find an, another producer. I think it was John Leckie, and we recorded that first in in Brussels in the studio, uh, Man of Straw. Uh, but I think I was influenced by XTC very much. Method. Oh, oh, oh. And, uh, And unpleasant surprise was a bit influenced by the the bands of that day, like uh, who were popular then. Human League, for example. Yes, be. and AB, ABC. ABC. You know, that kind of. Well, you make it sound as if it wasn't really very very special, but I thought your contributions to the album were were uh, substantial. Well, I never looked at it that way. And, uh, Uh, Hank later said it was a pity that uh, Man of Straw was left off the album. Uh, he, he more or less re regretted it uh, a bit. Mm. But we had a, now there were three uh, contributing uh, songs, and so there was not room enough. Uh. Spirits Awake was. Uh, was ook een coincidence dat Hank bought een uh, dulcimer at the market. En uh, uh, I was een beetje like Brian Jones, picking up uh, all the instruments that were available in the studio. So I must have picked up the dulcimer, because it's very handy. You put it on your lap. Uh, you have limited uh, tonal possibilities. No, not all the intervals are on it. Or I do something wrong. That could could also be so. Mm. But I use that for uh, that shake your rattle, fly your kite. That's evil in the dark. And that fitted very well.
started in, in, in the wear uh, with a mobile studio and we recorded several things I don't know exactly which ones but but we already noticed that that the sound would change because we are using different instruments of course we had a now a fabulous keyboard player and uh, so it we already knew that it was going to be a, a totally different album than the others and kilo once again even more concentrated even smaller and kilo that was a, a, a small adventure in between and and, and and it's still it's still one of my favorite sessions because kilo was uh, a changer of approach i remember that that we started recording because kilo was recorded in the whistlelord in the uh, in the famous Whistlord Studios where everybody was working. And um, and we started in, in a pop way. We started uh, uh, with Acres of Tintoretto as a pop song. Suddenly, we didn't like it at all. So uh, we went outside, and and we were working on sketches of Spain, the same way. We went outside into the. It was in the middle of the, of the woods. And and during that that one moment in uh, between the trees and so on and so on, I thought we had to make it very very simple. We have to. Uh, yeah, to go back to, to almost nothing. Doesn't finish and don't look now. I've seen the movies, I don't know how. I lost my way in this moonlit town Somebody whispers, I'm looking down And then from that moment that we recorded it The emptiness, the open, openness, the, the power of the song We found how we we're going to record this album. This is the way to do it. Uh, keep it very simple, keep it open, keep it slow. Most of the songs are slow, except for, and that's the, the thing that we, uh, I still don't like, uh, Your Next Tires. <laughs> that's, the, that's the mistake, uh, really a mistake for me. Uh, but okay, uh, it, uh, every album uh, should have one, uh, probably. Uh, uh, even the Beatles had, uh, 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 well, what was it? 
You better think for yourself if you can, little girl. Well, anyway, <laughs> there are moments of that that you think, ah, don't don't do it. But uh, but the rest was was in complete harmony. And uh, and I I still like the sound because we recorded it with the the engineer Emil Elson, and uh, he used one of the old old uh, desks of of Philips. Uh, one of the old ones of the studio, and 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 that was a, a very beautiful, warm sound. Let me pick out one of one of the songs from Kilo. Yeah, that I think is is um, is in a way central to what goes on later on. And now we're talking about a song about your neighborhood. Yeah, the the Nitz's Penny Lane, or Aux Champs Elysees. Yes, the neighborhood where where I was living for a long time here in Amsterdam East, the Dapper Buurt, uh, where the, the houses for the laborers were built. And and at that time, in the 80s, the, the government of Amsterdam thought uh, this should be demolished, this should disappear for modern houses. Give me the somber city The clouds are framed by attic windows Those are the words I long to hear But when I walk I keep my tears from falling And if you don't know where to go You're lost in a dead end street The houses fall down every day But maybe someday I'll keep this house from falling. I was living in the middle of it. Uh, and from my back window, I could see the destruction of the neighborhood. And, and even uh, one meter away was this, this, this wrecking ball. That, that, that's, that, what, what was, it was really one meter outside by my back window swaying back and forth sorry. yeah yeah and, and, and strangely enough I had my I had my synthesizer my Jupiter 8 was near the window where I was writing so it was a perfect combination of uh, making and destroying I'm wondering you know like did you ever have that thought you know like I'm going to write that song about my neighborhood like, no. like other people did No, but I liked, uh, of course, there was this famous poem, uh, the Dapperstraat by J.C. Bloom. Uh, it, it, it's all about a neighborhood that disappears. Uh, uh, I don't know it by heart now, but, but one of the first lines is to give me this somber city high roads. And it was exactly what I saw, what I saw disappearing. And, and uh, I kind of liked the This, this house is from the uh, from from the 19th century. How they were built? Of course, they were small, but they were also beautiful. The brick houses. Uh, I liked it uh, that architecture. So I saw it with pain in my heart. I saw it disappearing. And uh, and and the Dapper Street was was a famous street, also because this poem, but also because of the market was the market where we always bought our things and if you listen very well on the album you could hear the man selling potatoes saying <laughs> it's there it's so it's at the beginning of the end i i still i, I forget but, but that was the, the reason to call it kilo when you walk in the When you live in Depper Street Now it rains on broken windows The streets are always wet Through all the empty alleys wind blows It's a beautiful song, a beautiful song and it, it, it connects maybe with the, with the next song that I would like to mention is Neskio because I think that the writer, Mr. Gründel He he lived around here. Didn't he, he lived he lived in several houses around here, and and he, of course he walked around in his neighborhood a lot. It's also a, a, a connection with the neighborhood. Both songs in, in, yeah, in a different way. One through a poem, one through a book. 
And of course, the, the outfader, one of the stories of, of Neskio, the outfader was uh, a, a, a person that was a mysterious person, Yapi. And he disappeared, he, he jumped or he stepped off the bridge into the river in Holland. And I was not, of course, not pleased with that end and I let him swim in the river in the Rhine to Italy. Strangely enough, how he did it, I don't know. There came this disconnection between, between this neighborhood, this strange man jumping, stepping off a bridge into the water to Italy and phoning, phoning back to Neschio, to the writer, that it's, he is now in paradise. started out as a joke when we prepared the, the, the songs for, for recording it we were still in the stage of uh, finding out which songs would be yeah would be worth it mm. and there, there was a certain moment we uh, Hank played a cassette that he made on, on his holidays to, to Italy and there was this yeah sort of funny thing that he made about a sort of opera and and some Italian words and one of them was Neschio which happened to be a Dutch writer and Latin I don't know mm. and we, we just gave it a swing and I don't know if, it, if immediately but at a certain moment there was a sort of decision for me like uh, up, up till that point, uh, I I was the re replacement for Alex, mm -hmm. for a bass player. Then, yeah, yeah, and, and I mean, for me, the Nits was was really like as as I heard them for the first time. I I, I've, I always called them the Mondrian pop, and like like uh, mm -hmm. stripes and. And, uh, 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 very straight things, and and they played uh, uh, the way they played the keyboards was more sort of sort of one finger that was the nits. But then after playing such a long time together already, like, like touring a lot and playing that music, it, it, it felt okay. And uh, I remember. Uh, Dutch journalist telling me that that I was more a nit than they were nits, and which I, con I considered as a compliment because that that was my job and mm -hmm. uh, that was my purpose to, to to do that and not to be like the the Robert Jan Stips that and uh, I, I was a nit, you know. And mm -hmm. then, mm -hmm. But then you start uh, making an, an album together. And I've sort of uh, felt that, that yeah, the whole group was, was maybe ready for a new chapter. Then we started recording the, this Nesco thing in, in the studio. And I decided to, to give the <laughs> real different, uh, yeah, a real swing, you know, like a sort of, maybe sort of, Typical for for what I've done, like, like many times in, in in my career, like I, I switched from Super Sister to to Golden Earring, which was like the opposite. Yeah, yeah, and I think I like that. <laughs> and so, so um, we found out that there was this beautiful grand piano in, in studio, mm. and it was standing in uh, in a nice. My surrounding uh, where normally the violins were, were recorded, so it had a nice acoustic. And I, I sort of felt obliged to the to the grand piano to 
to to make it sound uh, like a grand piano, you know, and and not do ta 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 ta. And so I, I decided to to go complete different way and and make it like a very romantic, um, yeah, not Tchaikovsky, but what's the other one? Uh, uh, Rachmaninoff way or or whatever, you know. As a sort of joke, because uh, because that that was it in 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 the beginning when 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 Hank played the cassette, it was like Paradiso, and uh, very Italian. Yeah, 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 and and just fun, you know. And uh, uh, so I, I I thought it was important also to 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 keep that 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 mindset. Uh, in the song, but then you have the solo. I mean, it's 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 uh, amazing to me. As someone. is there a solo? Well, yeah, it's, it's, it's it's sort of yeah. like growing out of a structure that you play. Yeah, 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 yeah. Boom. Yeah, 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 yeah. Towards the end, and the galloping guitar, and yeah, but that that was also like uh, we 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 we. Uh, ended up building up uh, string instruments uh, with with uh, Michiel mm -hmm. uh, with the ma mandolin and uh, yeah that, that went really went over the grand piano so that, that, that was nice. And I had this 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 uh, instrumental thing, which was originally a sort of yeah, not really disco, but and the pom 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 it was something that that, that Michiel picked up while playing bass dum 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 and so it was dum 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 the streets of Barcelona and then we did, we, we had these two things that were really apart from each other Day in the life done as 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 yeah 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 sort of combination of Lennon and McCartney and, and, and as we do now like with the improvisations uh, like hey let's glue these things together because yeah Hank needed a, an instrumental part and I needed a song the rest of the song <laughs> what is really apparent is that uh, Sketches of Spain over the years has changed a bit, but not too much. I mean, no, so, no, so no. there are songs that seem to be, well, I'm not saying perfect, but maybe almost finished. Well, I, I remember the, 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 I, we were all very glad with the recording and it was a nice recording and the, the, the engineer fitted really well into the session and it was done in in one of the yeah the, the bigger studios of Holland and a nice grand piano and all those things fitted nicely together. Uh, Rob's idea with the, with the, as we call it the puck, the, the, the very small small mm -hmm. drum, pack, you know, and that that gave the idea for me to to, to make nice chords on that and like chang. We didn't feel like changing that song much. Uh, it was more like, how, how the hell are we going to do this live? Because live there were no... Uh, I had this Yamaha grand piano, but uh, it didn't sound like the one on the recording. And, 
but yes, we found a way, and uh, it's, it's it's one of the most played songs, I think. Hi, my name is Velowski. I'm an Amsterdam-based musician, songwriter, singer. I studied graphic design, and I am a ski instructor, level three. Omsk is the first album on which nits are joined by female voices on several tracks. One of them, Felovsky, remembers the sessions. Yes, I remember recording uh, the background vocals for Omsk with Matilda Sunting, which was great because I admired her. She was the, the blonde and I was the black one at uh, <laughs> Thousand Idiots Records. And the nits invited both of us to do... Um, the uh, the background vocals to uh, Henry Moore and uh, uh, Neskio and I remember this. I mean, the songs are are branded in my memory. And uh, it was at Arnold Muir's studio, I think, in Volendam, which is you can't get more Dutch than that. The music of the day had a label, New Wave. That meant everybody who was young and quirky. Bands like XTC or Squeeze, The Talking Heads or Echo and the Bunnyman, musicians such as Elvis Costello and Joe Jackson, all went by that definition. I was a young journalist in Switzerland, and I was watching this as if from the sidelines. When I first heard of the Nits, it seemed like this was the first pop band from Europe that sounded so continental. A Dutch band. And we discovered other musicians and singers from something that we considered to be a scene. Bands like Copa Sportivo or The Tapes. A label such as 1000 Idiots with the two female singers Matilde Santing and Feilowski. Well, it was a new era. It was the era where artists could develop regardless of music industry dictating them what to do and Nitz were doing that and I was doing that and I was part of a little movement called the Thousand Idiot Records and um, that was the parallels were quite obvious because uh, Thousand Idiots were run by a bunch of artists who um, were painting and doing all sorts of visual stuff as well so yeah the Nitz and Thousand Idiots We were brethren, so to speak. Why were bands from the Netherlands sound so fresh, so modern, so appealing and funny, and not our own from Central Europe? Well, I suppose Switzerland wasn't occupied by the Germans for a start, so there was no Americans coming in with music to uh, corrupt youth, so to speak. And then we had people coming in from Indonesia who brought their special brand of music which all together blended into a particular kind of pop music especially around the Hague and I suppose Dutch pop music is very much influenced by all that Apart from that there's the, um, the stark influence from abstract straight line art like Mondrian and the style and, and things like that that I believe influenced um, the aesthetics of uh, Nits for sure I'm, I'm sure that there was some influence there on them and Thousand Idiots equally so yeah being Dutch that amalgam of culture may have sort of led to a particular style Pelovsky not only guested on the album Omsk, she also sang with the Nits in concert. I remember the uh, concert in Paradiso and um, Nits had a, a vibraphone and I always wanted to play vibraphone. I, I had a little sort of marimba 
plus xylophone type thing. Um, but this was a real, real vibraphone. I got one myself later and um, I was playing the uh, instrumental, I forget the title. Uh, it went a bit like this. It's not a good... Just happened to have a guitar and no vibraphone. That's as far as I remember. I can't remember the title. for what they do.